Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 165th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Steve Kampschmidt. Steve is the founder of Freedom Found Financial, an independent REA based in northern New Jersey that oversees just over $20 million in assets under management for 30 affluent clients. What's unique about Steve, though, is that he just recently formed his advisory firm, having broken away from the training program at a major wirehouse. After realizing that with an entrepreneurial mindset and a goal of building a lifestyle practice with good work-life balance, it was simply far more economical for him to operate his own firm and control his own expenses than to give the majority of his income up to the grid. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Steve built his initial base of clients at the Wired House through modern cold calling techniques, leveraging Zoom info, the salary base that the Wired House provided while he built his initial base of clients, the type of alternative non-AUM business model he decided he wanted to create that necessitated a shift away from the Wired House, and why he's now operating with a blend of annual retainer fees and monthly subscription fees for various client types. We also talk about where Steve went to find the information and consulting support he needed to make the transition smoothly, what Steve actually went through to comply with the broker protocol when leaving his firm, the factors that led him to select Fidelity as his custodian of choice, the way he built out his advisor technology stack, and why he chose not to purchase any kind of portfolio performance reporting software and rely solely on eMoney's financial planning portal instead. And be certain to listen to the end, where Steve talks about the realistic expectations and how many clients will stick with you if you choose to leave a large firm and its national brand, his tips to career building in the early years, and especially as a career changer, and why in the end the biggest key to success is simply having the confidence in yourself and being willing to make whatever it changes it takes to service your clients the way that you want to serve them. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Steve Kampschmidt. Welcome, Steve Kampschmidt, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. I'm looking forward to this, to the discussion today and and you know this this interesting path or kind of phenomenon of what do you do when you come into the advisor industry and and you work somewhere for a few years and you really like it and you get some clients going and then you decide I'm I'm really in this business for the long run but I'm not sure I'm going to stay at the firm I started with and kind of the awkward challenges that crop up when you have to deal with not just potentially changing firms but potentially changing firms that may or may not want to see you take clients with them and all these rules that we have around things like broker protocol, if you're leaving large firms in particular. And, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to the discussion today of what I know has been an interesting journey for you of coming into the industry as a career changer, starting a large firm, having some success, at a large firm, and then deciding that you want to leave and go somewhere else and, and needing to navigate these real world things like broker protocol and how do you stand up your own firm and you know, set this new path for yourself when you decide, okay, really like the advisor world, just not sure I want to do my whole career at this firm I started with. Yeah. So as you've started down this journey, like just talk to us a little bit about what brought you to the financial advisor world in the first place. Like what what were you doing originally? And then how did you come to this industry? 
Yeah, so I actually I went to school for for finance and economics. Graduated back in '08 with my undergrad, and then '09 with my my MBA, and that was from Rochester Institute of Technology. And at the time, you know, I was actually interested in joining, but of course, that was during the kind of the financial collapse of 08 and 09. So it was not exactly the best time to try to get a job in the industry. Right. It was tricky. And I almost did land a spot actually within an RIA in relative proximity to where I grew up in northern New Jersey, but that didn't end up panning out. So, you know, fast forward a little bit, I ended up working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Enterprise Holdings now for a number of years. I've actually had deep family ties to the company. My father worked there for a long time. If you're familiar with the the company Enterprise Rent a Car, it's you know it's it's privately owned. It is a rental car company, of course, and kind of teach you how to operate a small business and read profit and loss statements. So I, I you know I performed well there. I was successful, and then eventually I got the bug that I wanted to get back into the industry that I had initially honestly set out to get into. And the way I I, I ended up doing that was. I obtained a job at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and initially I was a financial center manager for a couple of years. So I was still in this this kind of management role, knowing full well that I could end up potentially parlay that into becoming a financial advisor and starting my practice. So that was kind of the a quick summary of the journey to to get back to doing what I intentionally really set out to and wanted to do while in school. So you had an eye from early on like i i, I want to be a financial advisor i want to i want to do this thing i did yeah i was you know i think i was taught good lessons growing up from my folks from my father and just money management and understanding it so when i was going through school i i, I tended to to have a decent savers mentality and even shortly after graduating that kind of carried through i was the person at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, who when they got an initial promotion, was saying, okay, I got this much of a percentage raise. Let's dedicate half of it to upping my 401k versus going and getting a nicer vehicle or, or whatever caught my eye at that point in time. So, Fantastic. So, so you, you ended out as I think a lot of people that come into the advisor world, like I was I was the go-to financial person in my other world. I just decided that eventually I wanted to get paid for it. So I became a financial advisor. Yes, tired of giving complimentary advice at the water cooler, I guess, at at Enterprise. Uh (laughs) So what was the initial role that you took at Bank of America Merrill Lynch? It was as a financial center manager, or to to put it more bluntly, a bank manager. So I was overseeing the operations of a bank in New Jersey for Bank of America, where I had a number of employees – one of which, which was also a financial solutions advisor, which is you know, the Merrill Edge version of a financial advisor that stays within a banking center, and did that was had a higher earning potential, of course, because shifting over, having been in management for a number of years at Enterprise, but just as I mentioned, after a couple more years, I decided that I wanted to to make the leap and go back into becoming a financial advisor, and an opportunity had presented itself when I met with the complex director in Northern New Jersey for Merrill Lynch. So part of the appeal for coming in in the management role initially was just, I get a stable salary. I can roughly translate something over similar to the salary I was getting before. Like that was part of the draw for you in making that transition there, as opposed to trying to find like an advisor job 
from day one when you were switching out of enterprise? It was, yeah. I had, of course, had a certain level of earnings at the prior management role with an enterprise. So coming into the bank, I was able to kind of maintain that level. And But eventually, after I, I had put away enough in savings and... I was willing to to kind of jump over and take a bit of a pay cut to to move into becoming a financial advisor in the FADP program and then just starting my journey of building my practice. I think it's an interesting point though that that you made there that you know I, I guess to me sort of twofold that you know part of taking the ongoing salary was like I'm living on less than I make from this. I didn't need the salary to pay my bills. I need the salary because it was more than I buy bills, and that's what let me build up some savings so that I can eventually do the shift where you launch the advisory career and take what for almost everybody ends up being a pay cut, particularly if you're a career changer, because you built up the savings to say, okay, now I've got a runway because it may take me a while to get my clients and get going. Yeah, and I think I think trying to be as thoughtful as possible and plan far ahead in advance was something that's carried over to to when I inevitably left Merrill Lynch as well and and, and started my own practice, uh, an RAA. So I've always attempted to make sure I, I left myself some form of a safety net to to not put myself in an inappropriate position. So it's, you know, I think sometimes maybe even advisors need an advisor. And luckily I was, I was fortunate where I felt like I did the right things and set myself up to be as successful as possible over the long run. So out of curiosity then, was there like a dollar target? You know, I need to have X dollars in the bank or, or Y months of savings built up. Was that the trigger for you to say, when I get here, then I'm going to try to find a job, like an actual switch out of the manager role into an advisor job role? Or was it just, we're going to build up some savings, and then if opportunistically something comes along, at least I'll be able to grab it? There wasn't a specific number, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I was I was married at the time when I ended up making, well, I was actually, wasn't quite, it was, it was 2016, September of 2016. But I was I was with somebody at the time who I was living with. And also had a decent salary, my my girlfriend at the time and now my wife. So it, it, it made sense numbers-wise where it, it would make – it was going to be okay basically where, yes, I still had the safety net, but even at the income level split between us, we were going to be okay, no problem. And this was, this was pre – just before we ended up having our children and getting, getting pregnant was around the time I shifted from the management role into becoming a financial advisor. So, of course, some additional expenses ended up popping up, but <laughs> – Let's say didn't didn't anybody explain to you that's not really the ideal timing for that? <laughs> that's that is life though, isn't it? I guess. Uh, oh, so true. So true. It's one of those things where emotional considerations too, and just other things you can I think plan for a little bit better in terms of making sure you have the right amount of income or savings. But children, it's 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 quite emotional where it's different, and you want to have have children. And again, we were. I knew my numbers and having been a saver and looking at quickly and, and, and I had a base salary. It's not like at Merrill Lynch, uh, along with some of the other wirehouse wirehouses out there with the programs they use, there was a guaranteed base salary for that period of time that I was in that, that at the time PMD program, now FADP program. So I'm wondering on this end. So I, I guess, cause I, I just, I think this is a area that is sometimes underappreciated about the dynamics of, trying to launch an advisory firm, just how important it is to get some some combination of, I guess, financial foundation and or financial safety net in place. 
because it's it it's very costly to start an advisory firm and it, and it's not costly because it costs you a lot of hard dollars out of pocket to get it going it's not like you're standing up a factory where you need to get real estate equipment and machinery and all this other stuff that just like yeah like it, it's not capital intensive in that way it may take a while to get clients and get revenue going and you got to pay your bills at home <laughs> While you're waiting to build your income up to the point where your take-home pay covers those bills. And so it's it's the it's not the business cost of launching that's the challenge for most people. It's the personal household upkeep. But it still means some combination of you know, building savings, having a spouse that works, and being able to live on one spouse's income partially or fully while you build the other. That just is a very practical reality of what it takes for a lot of people if you want to go start out your own and you're you're not going to take a role that is, you know, purely employee and salary based, although those are jobs are out there as well. Like if you want to build your own practice with your own clients, you have to have a way to navigate that at least partial income gap as you try to get clients to earn back to what your your salary or standard of living was before. And it can take a few years. I mean, not that it's zero throughout, but like it can take a few years before you build the number all the way back up. Yeah, and it's you know it's why it worked out well to have built up some clientele in a practice within Merrill Lynch, and it wasn't my intent to do that from the get go. I actually early on, and for the first majority of the time I was there, I I set out to become a Merrill Lynch advisor, and it wasn't until I I started learning the industry more and and focusing on my clients and uh, understanding fee structures and just gaining an appreciation and, and listening to podcasts and reading and until I did all these things that I really started to recognize that, hey, I, I caught this entrepreneurial bug and wanted to to break away <laughs> after learning more and more. So having that practice, that, that small, smaller practice, of course, that was built up, it still gives you that additional safety net. Because as you mentioned, it isn't necessarily the, the capital intense nature of going into the industry. It's, it's, it's that loss of income and potentially benefits. And again, I, I had benefits through my spouse. So it was it was a little bit smoother landing to to start rather than having a strictly scratch start, which I know and, and you've of course had other podcasts and listening to XYPM podcasts with Alan Moore, it's it can be incredibly difficult to to be a strictly scratch start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when you talk to a lot of advisors that did this early on, you we've had a number of folks on this podcast that you run some of the you know, the largest billion dollar, multi-billion dollar firms in the in the industry today on the independent side. And and still like talking to a bunch of them, it's like, oh yeah, I racked up like thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt my first year. And that was in 1987 when that was a ginormous pile of credit card debt because it just was very costly in income loss to live your live your life and pay your bills while you're making no money in for some people the first year or two while you're trying to build that client base and overcome the initial business expenses so you can start getting positive cash flow. Yeah, it's incredibly and I feel for those that's why I'm I'm grateful and and yeah. of course I I kind of intently planned it this way so I I knew getting into it but I that's why I feel for those who have done it and who have really made that that wager on themselves and and more power to them too if you have the utmost confidence in yourself that you can do it and you can build it and ensuring that you have some kind of differentiation factor I think is what's what's probably most critical in those early years and being knowledgeable. You know, there's knowledge 
cannot be discounted. And whether it's you obtain, you were able to obtain your CFP elsewhere, or at least maybe you didn't have the experience requirement, but it's, it's critical to making sure that during those early conversations in those beginning years, you're able to, to talk intelligently across the table from almost any prospect that you meet. Yeah, I know that was, for me, that was a, a material part of the path early on. You know, I, I, I mean, I started in my early 20s straight out of school and, and had, you know, to, like the additional layers of age bias when, you know, you're trying to work with clients who, who are literally looking at you and like, oh, it's so cute. Like you're almost as old as my grandchildren. <laughs> sure. I'll hand you, I'll, I'll hand you millions of dollars. Here you go. Yeah. Like you're almost as old as them. And I remember when I was putting them in diapers. So tell me again what you do. It's like, uh, okay, that's that's a little blow to my credibility right there. And and you know that's why I'm now kind of grateful that I, I got turned away and didn't enter the industry at the time I did when upon graduation was because the crash course that I received in sales and service and again understanding kind of the, the back office and managing expenses within enterprise was was paramount to me being able to have success once I finally ended up arriving within Merrill Lynch and started that practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean when I came at it, I you know, and that same theme of of like trying to find your differentiating factor in the early years and 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 not discounting knowledge. Like that was part of why I ended up getting alphabet soup of designations. I was like, all right, at least at least they're gonna look at me and say I'm young. They can look at me and say, like, wow, he's so young and and like he has all this knowledge. Right. And I'm, I'm like, I- I'm gonna turn this into a positive. Geez, seems young to have all this great knowledge as opposed to just seems young, which felt like a negative. Sure. I want <laughs> I know. And you are the the encyclopedia of financial planning knowledge. <laughs> you, I may have taken it slightly further than was necessary, but it did work. It did work. Was there a, an angle for you around this? Like you'd said, you know, you you were you were focused on having some kind of differentiating factor in your in their in your early years. Was there a a particular path that you took to say how am I going to stand out amongst all the other advisors, I guess even other all the all the other Merrill advisors literally in your program that you're sort of feeling like you're in competition with? I mean I didn't the thing is I didn't have while at Merrill I, I really didn't have that great of a differentiating factor. I mean I was I had experience because I had been in management. I'd had people in time management sales background. So I mean I I built the majority of my book through cold calling while I was within Merrill Lynch. So I, and I didn't. It was just, it was hard numbers. It was, you know, hitting the phones as much as possible and then showing up and, and being diligent about that process. So I really didn't. And, and now, of course, I do have a much greater differentiation factor, which I'm sure we'll get into. But at the time when I was within Merrill, there really wasn't. It was more so just my ability to communicate, to sit down confidently at the table once I got a meeting, a face to face. And being a nerd when it comes to planning and, and learning as much as I possibly could to the prospects I was sitting down with. And I, I guess there's there's nothing like grinding out code calling for a couple of years to say, like, I feel like I would like to get a more clear differentiator in the future, so I don't need to do that. Yeah. And I'm not one that absolutely despised it. I didn't, it was kind of just, I wouldn't even call it a necessary evil. It was just a necessity. I mean, every single one of the FADP or PMD participants that I had seen that was successful from prior years within my complex, that's how they built it. You know, maybe outside of one who had attached to a larger team or had, was was a decent amount older and had a substantial network of, of rollers they could potentially pull from and 
there just wasn't that many success stories. So you had to do cold calling. So, so talk to us about like just how it worked when you became a, an initial advisor in the, in the Merrill program. And I realized the program changed a bit. They used to have their PMD program. Now I think it's FADP, but like when you were there and transitioning in, like, what was the, what was the deal? Like, how did it work of you know, salary or what you get compensated? Like, how, how are you coming into it and, and looking at this financially when you're trying to decide whether to make the leap? Yeah. When I first came in, it was kind of the, the general history of the PMD program where it was largely based on production, right? Where you had to produce a certain amount. And of course, production tra- production translates to revenue. So when I first came in, that was primarily the, the program and the way you were going to do it. There still was an additional bucket, which was called strategic flows, which was some assets counted, some didn't. And there was so many changes while I was there throughout the program that it's tough to, to even recount all the different things that occurred. But it was mainly production. But then there was a shift along the way, and I'm probably about close to a year in where changed. And I think they they started to see the value more and more, as the industry has, of, of relationship building. And so it turned into being a best ball type of bucket where it also encountered or accounted for gross new households and, and assets, just general total assets and liabilities that were brought into the program which is how I intended to, how I started to build my business because I was you know, knowing enough about the industry when I even came into it and having read your blog you know, way before I even went into Bank of America, I, I knew enough that I wanted to be the relationship advisor and not anything bound towards product. And it's, it's rare. You don't see that the product drive commission generation is the lesser of what you see now within, at least from my experience, within the wirehouse firm and, and Merrill at where it was. You know, I think the whole the whole industry is is kind of going through that that change and that shift of like, oh, you know, it turns out just when you're in an ongoing relationship with clients, like retention is better and service tends to be better because you're just incentivized to do it more to keep them around. Revenue is is still more stable than like a continuous sales environment, you wake up every January 1st and your income is zero until you go find new people to sell stuff to. You know, the the industry, you know, top to bottom and all the way across seems to be in this shift towards more relationship-oriented focus that says, no, 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 it's about how how deep you're going with the client and and just from a practical perspective, the the opportunity to expand the relationship and say, I don't just have one account. I have all your accounts, or I don't just provide you advice in this one area. I'm doing comprehensive advice for you in all areas and, and having an opportunity to do more business with that client, but just expanding the relationship. Yeah. And it was, you know, there was a couple pivots while I was there because there are certainly teams and advisors within not just Merrill, but all the different wirehouse firms out there that they still had a significant amount of revenue that was based on transactional type business. So they made a pivot where there was, I think at at their heart and they really do want to, because they see what's going on with market share, they do want to push towards managed money into this relationship type model. But at the same time, once the laws flipped back and they, there was probably enough voices concerned about, hey, let's have that flexibility, they, they pivoted back. But I think, honestly, the message that I did receive was that they are pushing towards the relationship model. And, of course, they're, but they're largely using that as a percentage of assets under management, which is 
different from also what I'm doing now. Well, and, and I guess the the notable effect when you get into large firm environment, particularly large firms like Merrill Lynch that has Bank of America attached is, is you know, there's, it doesn't even necessarily just have to be about traditional investment accounts. You get opportunities to expand banking relationships. You get opportunities to support on the liability side of the sheet. You know, you, you have access to loan products at a company like Merrill Lynch that most in the RA community just don't have. It's not a, it's not a solution we can bring to the table. And so I know you get interesting opportunities in the wirehouse environment that, frankly, a relationship can actually be more on all-encompassing and all the different things that you help the clients with than even we sometimes can do on the independent channels. Yeah, and that was that was a selling point. And you know, I, I know probably others, and sometimes I feel like it was a giant push. I never felt it was a huge push to to spread out and make sure that the clients that you were bringing in were ensuring that you had banking. They incentivized you to, of course, as is well documented in, in how grid payout plans work nowadays. But I never sure. felt, I, I felt like you still had complete flexibility to do what you need to do. And there was a slight amount of pressure that was there. I'm sure it's, it wasn't nearly what it might have been initially or in the past where it was being shoved down your throat a little bit more than that. So, yeah. And that ultimately just comes down to like you must generate a certain amount of of revenue of production on a month to month or quarter to quarter basis to 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 validate the contract and keep going in the program. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was the best best ball two out of three where it was either production, net new assets and liabilities, and then gross new households. So my my primary focus was because, as you know, when you're building a relationship model and you're charging a percentage of assets under management that I was, it takes time for the production to catch up because it's billed on a monthly basis and those those credits or revenues are only hitting on a monthly basis versus if you were selling a product, a share mutual fund or something or, or whatever it was, you're getting a lot more production up front. So, you know, I mentioned before, even from the onset, regardless of whether I failed and I didn't make it through, I knew I was going to build it from that relationship standpoint and use a percentage of assets under management. So I was able to do that. And when they were in court, they started to incorporate the, that newer model with the gross new households and, and net new assets and liabilities. It was far, it was easier for me. It was, it was, it was pretty easy at that point because I'd already done well from that standpoint versus strictly the production level. And so how did it work from an overall compensation for you like do you get a do you get a flat salary through this is it like a salary plus a percentage of your production is there a shift of like it starts out as salary but then it becomes more production based over time how are you coming into this from the compensation end yeah it was it was a guaranteed salary initially when i came in it was different you know there was a, i did take a slightly heightened salary which would diminish after the 12 month mark it would kind of diminish over the following 24 months until the end of the that entire period with kind of a minimum but then also during the program they ended up upping it where the salary remained for the entire program time frame so so you did have the potential to to hit additional monthly bonuses some long term incentives 
I, I didn't really have that opportunity. And with that, you know, without going into too much detail, my, my comp plan was kind of based off of the old plan, which was production, more production focused. And, but to get through the program, I was able to get through on the new best ball type hurdles. So my, so again, my, my compensation was really just my salary while I was there, because if it was strictly on production, I wouldn't have quite hit those goals. And, and can you give us a sense? I'm sure it, it, it varies for people, at least to some extent, based on what they come in with, but like, what, what kind of salary are we talking about here? I mean, is this just a, like, look, you'll get, you know, $3,000 a month so you can maybe pay a basic rent bill, but everything else is on your own, or, or is this a, a higher salary closer to where you were that lets you maintain more of the current lifestyle and then grow from there. Yeah, I can tell you what I was paid. I mean, I'll tell you what I was paid. I'm not sure because I'm not privy to the information now, but I was paid 70000 when I initially came in, which was a heightened base salary. I think at the time it might have been fifty, but I, which w- with the normal salary would have been. But because of my prior experience, my background negotiation, okay. my salary was 70000 And then it kind of remained at that for the period of the program. And the program runs how long? Three years. It's technically forty-three months because I was not licensed prior to coming in. Yeah, I mean, once you're in full production, it is three years, but you have a three-month time frame to obtain your licenses, and then an additional four months. What they call this is all I think you can find this on their website. It's a development stage yeah. where it's a four-month time frame where you kind of ramp up until you actually enter into production for that three-year period. Okay. Okay, and so. So you're coming with the salary and the, and the idea is as I go through, I don't know if they evaluate monthly or quarterly, like I've got, I've got to hit certain targets as I go. The targets got a little more flexible as the program adapted. Initially, it was a production target. Then it was either production or net new assets or gross new households. But you had to, you got your salary, but you had to hit certain targets in order to keep your salary and keep the gig. And then after your 43 month window, the salary would go away and you were just going to revert to whatever your payout would be off the grid at that point with whatever you had by the time you got there? Essentially, yeah. And once once you did grad, fully graduate from the program, and I had left just a couple of months prior to graduation. So at that point, I would have reverted back. And yes, it would have been based off of the amount of production, which you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the grid rates where at that level, it's less than 40% is what you're taking from the production level that you have. And they're taking a little over 60% off the top. And then, it, you know, it slides up or if you're with a team, it can be a little bit different. But yeah, no, it was, it was, they had changed it where it was that salary and it remained that for the entirety of the program, actually. It didn't dwindle while you were in it. It would just end up reverting back and shifting basically to that production base off the grid rate once you've graduated from the actual program. But what that means in the in the aggregate is like if I want to continue my seventy plus thousand dollar salary after I get out of this, I'm gonna need closing in on like hundred and seventy five to two hundred thousand dollars of gross production after three years so that my thirty something, thirty five to forty percent payout gets me back near where I was previously. That's right. Yeah. So I mean it's it can be a struggle. I mean, unless you had really built up a substantial substantial business prior to graduating, and you know, I would have been okay again still, where my numbers and the the amount of revenue or production that I was at from the relationship business I had gathered, I would have been okay. It would have been less than what I had been making, but I would have been okay. 
but it's still, you know, it, I just, I started to see the margins and what they can be in this industry. And if you're willing to assume some control and do some research, it's, it's pretty incredible as, as you know, the margins that you can create for yourself in the independent space. So, so talk to us a little about just how you got clients, like how, how did it get going? You, you, you mentioned a little of, of cold calling, but like, what was the cold calling? Like who, who, who were you calling on? Where did the numbers come from? Like what, what were you offering them? What did that look like in practice? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, the numbers came from mainly zoom info. Have you heard of the, the website of the applicator that was zoom info before? Yep. Yeah. So you, you can obtain numbers and it was, it was largely, I'm in Northern New Jersey, a lot of fortune 500 corporate directories and director level, vice president level is, is the types of individuals that I was calling on. And, you know, you end up finding companies that you can build somewhat of a presence in after you might obtain one or two clients. So yeah, I, I dialed numbers, a lot of different companies of medical device and pharmaceutical companies and it's, it's really just based on timing. If you have a decent script when you call somebody and they are in the need, whether they're upset with their current advisor, they're having some kind of life event, it's, it's kind of luck on the initial conversation. Uh, that's why they you should be using scripts at that point. And then once you get that face-to-face meeting, that is where you, know, you really have to make sure that you know what you're doing and where the sale really truly begins that process. And again, I had had some, some experience before and was working through my CFP coursework while I was in the program. So I, I had a, a decent level of confidence when I'd sit down with anybody, but that was, again, yeah, that was, that was the bulk. There was, there was some networking that, that brought in some clients initially, a couple of family accounts too, but that was really the bulk of it. So, so I'll make sure I understand this because Zoom Info is, as far as I know, is basically just like a, a giant database system where you can plug in uh, names or companies or people at companies and then they can ideally give you phone numbers, direct dial numbers, email addresses, some way to hit them because they you know, scrape a bajillion different public databases to try to get it. So from your end, like it was just, hey, you can try to look up pretty much anybody you want on zoom info. So figure out who you want to look up and and then go look them up and, and go do it. I mean, was there further guidance or just zoom info is like the modern version of here's the, here's the phone book. Yeah, That's figure out some names to call and try calling them. That's yeah. It's a very efficient phone book because I mean, the thing is with an old phone book, you had no idea who you were calling, right? Maybe you had some someone right. might be, but for the most part you had no idea. So with zoom info, you were able to kind of dictate what level they were within the company. Of course you scrub once you have the lists from there, you can scrub them within the tools that they have Merrill Lynch so that you're not affecting anything on the DNC, the do not call database. Right, right. So you're doing all those things. And once you've done that, you make the, the calls. And I, I pinpointed, I felt like I, I did the best with director level executives within these publicly traded companies. And it wasn't just, I also dialed some private companies also, but it was, it was a lot of publicly traded companies. So, so once I had the numbers, I'd, I would build out lists on an Excel spreadsheet. It was a lot of grunt work where you're just scraping that information from zoom info, putting on an Excel spreadsheet. And then once the lists are built, you right click on Excel, it's all connected and you, you dial and you have a headset and you just, you're off to the races. Interesting. And so 
is this like what you found as a path or this is literally how Merrill set you up? Like they, you know, they paid for the Zuma info license, just you log in, you figure out what names and people you want to try to pull up. You obviously scrub it against the do not call list because you want to get in trouble. And then just, okay, you know a little bit about them based on what you got in Zuma info. So good luck with that. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't direct guidance from from Merrill the company. No, it was more so past participants of the program. How were they successful? Talking okay. with them, talking amongst your own FADP or PMD class, and some people would go out and purchase lists externally. But I think okay. Zoom Info was what I found to have the most traction with. And once I, you know, once you get those first couple initial meetings very early on and you get a little bit of a success, you say, hey, you know what? I'm doing the best with this. So let's just continue to, to drive on it a little bit more. So, so what did it look like as you're calling them? Like, what's the, what's the pitch? I mean, how, like, <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve. I'm calling from Merrill Lynch. Do you have a few minutes? Do you want to hear the pitch, Michael? Yeah, I want to hear the pitch. Like, <laughs> ring, ring me. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah. So, go ahead and pick up. Ring, ring. All right. Uh, hello, this is Michael. Hi, Michael. This is Steve Kampschman. I'm calling from Merrill Lynch. How you doing today? Um, okay. Uh, what's up, Steve? Why are you calling me? Yep. I know you weren't expecting the call and I promise to be brief. The reason I was reaching out is because I'm a financial advisor within Merrill Lynch and I actually happen to work with a number of individuals within your company. I was planning on being out on so-and-so date at so-and-so times, depending Mm. upon what the time frame was, and just wanted to see if you'd be open to sitting down for 10, 15 minutes to, to talk a little bit and see if our practice can share some value with you. Interesting. And uh, I just... They either say yes or no. If you dial enough of them, a few people say yes, and that's your entree to the conversation. Yeah, it's a numbers game. It is. Yeah. Again, you'll you'll get plenty of no's, and the majority of them, of course, are just non non pickups. Just most people don't right, pick right. up. You get probably majority no's, and then when they do pick up, and then a number of yeses, where you know maybe two to three out of a hundred dials would be a yes. You know, one to two percent, I think, would be kind of the normal number that you would see. And and I did track it, and I think those numbers for me tended to be largely true for getting that initial meeting. Interesting, because I I mean I'm just reflecting on it at that point. Like, there's nothing particularly uh, I don't know, like like there's not a particular just dis- disturbing track you're trying to get them going on just if you ask enough people that question at some point you're going to talk to someone's like oh you know funny thing like i actually just saw my advisor last week i'm really not happy with him i was kind of thinking about making a switch anyways oh and i guess i mean you're going to be here and i'm familiar with merrill lynch and you know they hired you so i i, I guess you're a reasonable one to talk to and uh kind of convenient since you're coming out to my office anyways like sure like i'll, I'll do I'll do 10 or 15 minutes with the guy and just see what happens. Yeah. And the convenience factor there is, is, is probably the most critical part of all of it is stating that you're going to be there at a certain time and giving a couple of options, because if you're there, they're going to be there, obviously they're right. They're, they're, they're 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 yeah. You business. know where they are. <laughs> so it's very easy for you to get together quickly versus attempting to set up another meeting in the future elsewhere or an additional phone call. My strategy was always to, get face to face with them as quickly as possible because that's how you close faster. Yep. And so you call a hundred people, one or two are going to say yes. I would imagine not even all of them post for the meeting, but probably most of them. Cause 
you know where they are and they know you know where they are. So like they'll 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 show up for the meeting. And once you're in person, then I presume it quickly gets to like, so you know, you took this meeting for a reason, like, you know, well, what what are your financial concerns and how can I help? Yeah, and that's where the human touch comes in, of course. Once you're sitting across the table from somebody, you're looking them in the eyes, they're gonna judge your character, they're gonna judge your knowledge. And I was I think the only individuals that tend to have success when they're first starting off like that are you're not focusing on investments. You're not focusing even necessarily on planning at first. It's more so just who are you as a human being and let me get to know you. What is your family like? What do you enjoy? What are your hobbies? And it's those kind of silly ice-breaking types of, of questions and conversations that is how you ultimately gain trust. And so as you said at that point, like, it's just a numbers game. I mean, as, as long as you're getting one or two out of every hundred, just, you know, it hurts getting the other 98 no's, but the faster you can dial and get through them, have good conversations if they're good and them quickly if they're not. At some point, you'll get your one or two yeses for every hundred dials and get a few meetings and a few of those turn into clients. And if you grind long enough, it will add up. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And it will, over that, to, to kind of summarize it over the two and a half to three year time frame from when I was in production. I, I'm asked about 25 new households number was, and I was approaching close to 20 million in assets. So you, know, you can kind of do the math and, and the time frame there, but that's, that's where I was at. And it was enough to be successful within the program. But, and then again, I, I mentioned earlier, there was a couple outside of cold calling to other family accounts or some networking events, maybe something, one or two came from that, but the lion's share was from cold calling. And so as you're, as you're doing this and making calls, like what was the, how many calls were you making in a day? Like what did a, what did a day or a week look like for you at that point? Yeah. Early on, different people have different methods, right? Where some people want to hit a specific amount of calls. And I would probably end up saying earlier on the first six months to year, it would be up to 200 calls in a day, 100 to 200 calls in a day, probably. But my focus was meetings. So I was always attempting to get two meetings, a minimum of two meetings within a day when I was really kind of on full court press early on for for doing the dialing and making cold calls and over time, you know, within that that first year, I started to build a pipeline and a pipeline of, of individuals that were yeah, so if you people like you know, I, I really don't want to meet you with right now, but I, I got some stuff going on. Like, Steve, call me back in two or three months and, and I may talk to you then. Yeah. So you, you make a spreadsheet and and this was just my way of tracking it. There's Everyone has a different method. Like you said earlier on, 100 different advisors, 100, 100 different ways. So I made a spreadsheet with a probability ranking, you know, basing it from mm. anywhere from 5% to 95%, kind of on the trajectory of closing that prospect where they were, whether it was initial fact-finding, discovery, plan implementation, recommendations, all along that entire spectrum. Interesting. And so over time, you've just, you got this growing spreadsheet of people I'm talking to where there's some momentum, where there's more momentum, where there's not much momentum. So you could, you could just track and manage where they were. So the, so the goal was to, the goal was getting two meetings a day off of your calls. Like fast, you get to two meetings, the fast you like, okay, take a breather for the rest of the day. You got your two <laughs> chill out. Yeah. Or focus on longer term strategies. So I mean, while okay. I was in the program and now I had started the process of 
was part of a networking group similar to BNI, but we formed something outside of BNI where we're kind of on our own, uh, one seat for every industry. So CPA, state planning attorney, realtor, mortgage broker, all these different professional service type industries. So I was, I would build that out and communicate and make meetings with them. Or I was also a board member on a local nonprofit within my town, which I'm now president of Booten Main Street. And you know, the, the, those were the longer plays, right? So I would right. focus on those kind of in the background, but the quickest way to get clients in fast, which is what you have to do when you're in that kind of program, was cold calling in my experience because you were finding people who had a need and getting to them. And was there something, like, were there metrics you targeted in, I guess, the the numbers game further down the stream? Like, one to 200 calls a day should get me one or two meetings. But were you then looking like of those, here's how many I think will hold up in the meetings. And then here's how many I'm going to get to do fact finders. And then here's how many I'll ultimately be able to get as some kind of clients. Did you have like targets all the way down or just the goal activity was meetings? If I do enough of them, some business is going to shake out eventually. Yeah, to an extent I did. And I, I didn't, once I got further along and I was progressing in the program early on, I was tracking to try and figure out, of the meetings that I set, how many of those were moving forward in in the process. And it was probably of the ones that I was meeting, I think it was close to maybe 50% were moving forward in the process. I, I couldn't tell you, and I didn't, you know, maybe shame on me where I didn't get to the point where I knew exactly of the meetings that I ended up setting, what was my final close rate. I mean, if I had to guess if I brought in 20, I don't know. I would have to do some, some, some math and think about it for a second, but I, I couldn't tell you that exact figure now. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I just kind of math backwards on it, you know, you, you know, you were ending out with about a, a new client every month over, over two plus years. So, you know, you're, you're, you're going for one or two meetings a day. Cause you don't always get them every day. Not everybody shows up for a, for a meeting. Some days you actually have to go out and do the meeting. So I'm presuming you can get it to as many, as many calls that day, but I, I would, and then there's some who don't have enough don't have enough assets to manage to that might right. want to move forward in the process, but given the structure there, you you couldn't move them forward, or maybe I didn't want to move forward with them because they were strictly performance driven and being a planner and, and more passive in investment strategies, and that wasn't in my interest. So yeah, I would imagine it sounds like you were getting I don't know, 15, 20 meetings a month that were that were setting up, and one of those became a client. So like. Five or 10% actually shakes out the bottom. Like they showed up, they met with you, they were qualified, they were interested in doing the business, and then they actually signed up and did something. Yeah, early on, I think those numbers would be be very reflective. But I think as I progressed and told you before, <laughs> I had two daughters along the, the way also, and I was wrapping up my CFP coursework. So as that got more intense and, and took away from some of my time, those numbers probably dwindled a little bit, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. Sure. Life, life and other things come up. That's always part of the challenge, particularly in the, in that painful grindy phase. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. So, so you got some traction, like you, you lived the grind one or 200 calls a day on and on, got to 20 something households, closed in on $20 million of assets. You're a few years in the program. You're, you're making enough of numbers that you can stay in the program and, and keep compounding forward. So, like what what shifted or changed for you that you're still going in the business but you are not still at that company 
Yeah, yeah. It was it was probably listening to to podcasts and reading. It was just uh, you know I stumbled across a couple podcasts with you and a number of others that are that are out there for individuals like Steve Lockshin and then James Osborne from Basin Asset Management who you know James was kind of an individual who a lot of his ideas were very reflective of thoughts that I had had while I was progressing within Merrill especially from the standpoint of flat fee structures how he modeled his business his feelings towards percentage of assets under management and how there's even conflicts of interest within that so once I started to, to to delve into that and really just allow myself to to be thoughtful on it and think through it, I started to have this idea that, hey, what would independence look like? And having had a managerial background, having looked at expense statements, managing those those line items, I felt like I had the right kind of set of skills to to move forward and and be successful. So, you know, and then of course the, the benefit on top of that and just being passionate about the ideas and the way I wanted to structure my own my own company was that the margins were far better too. So I'm not going to discount that. I'm not going to shy away and try and say that obviously the the pay could end up being better when you're you're out on your own and you're able to control what your expenses are. Yeah, I mean just kind of the math of it, you know, if you're if you're, I mean, even just in traditional AUM, if you're, if you're living the the proverbial one percent fee on about twenty million dollars, it's it's roughly two hundred thousand dollars gross revenue. So, in a wirehouse environment where you may only be at a thirty something percent payout on the grid, you know, you're you're keeping your you know you're keeping thirty five percent of your gross revenue. The the house is getting the other sixty five percent. And to be fair, like. They're providing compliance and technology and office space and a lot of other things that you get. But the, there there comes a point where you can sit down and say like, okay, but I'm pretty sure I could get office space for myself and buy some software and it wouldn't cost me 65% of $200,000. Yeah. And so when I ran those, when I started running those numbers, it was, it was very evident. I mean, I, I do have an office space that's in my own town, but I pay $400 a month. And it's a very nice office space, and that's one of the larger expenses on top of compliance, which was very important to me to make sure I was working with somebody from that compliance perspective that could assist me and make sure there was no no issues, especially during this first year, right? So once you see it more and more, it's it's kind of similar to when a prospect sits down with an advisor where – they don't know what they don't know in the industry and whether it's financial planning itself and all the advantages of doing things certain ways, advisors in a larger firm perspective or in wirehouses, they don't know what they don't know. And until they start listening to your podcast or they start listening to a Mindy Diamond podcast, they're not going to really gain an appreciation for for what it can look like on the outside and how you can have control over all of these different moving parts as long as you're willing to do that that and and, yeah. and be slightly entrepreneurial it can look far better and it is far better yeah and, and and i think you make a really important point there that you have to be interested and ready and willing to handle and do like all those other decisions that that come like you know good news you have total control bad news that means you have to make every stinking decision about everything yeah <laughs> Because no one makes any of the decisions for you. It's it, it's kind of like uh it reminds me of what happens for the the subset of our our clients that uh like I really wanna build a house. Like I I 
you know, I want to be able to make it exactly my way. And, and we want to be able to put all the, all the, like, make it the way that we want to live in it. So we're going to build our own house. Like, you know, that's awesome. We can help figure out how to budget and pay for it. And, and I think without a single exception, every single client we've ever had that went and built their own house at some point was completely drained by like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that we were going to have to spend an hour just thinking about the knobs on the cabinets <laughs> yeah. and choosing from oh, 17 different options and like every possible thing someone has to make a decision. And if you're building from scratch, that's you. So if you like making those decisions and and you're ready to make all those decisions, like more power to you. And it's great. That's why a lot of people choose the independent path, but like it's fair to recognize a lot of people really don't like that. And, and that to me is why at the end of the day, as much as we talk about even the, the breakaway trend, you know, the if you look at a lot of the industry studies, like most people measure the breakaway trend out of wirehouses in the dozens of advisors who left and went to independent channels. And between the big four, Merrill Morgan, UBS, and Wells, there's over 50,000 advisors. So like 99 plus percent of them stay every year because a lot of people don't want to make that level of decisions and have to deal with all of that. That's, you know, part of what you have to do if you want the, the margins part of what you get at the end if you make those decisions. And they're just comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that either, right? And it might not even necessarily be that they wouldn't be willing to or they'd want to. It's just why am I going to even start down that path when, you know, what I am making is X, what I'm trying to get to is Y, I'm hitting those types of things. And why am I going to, you know, burden myself with all these other responsibilities if I'm if if what I'm attempting to accomplish is being accomplished. So I think it's just that it's kind of human nature, this level of comfortability where why am I going to change and put myself into this uncomfortable position when I just simply don't need to? So yep. yes, there has to be that that driving factor or that burning desire to either be an entrepreneur or, or I guess if you get ticked off enough, if something <laughs> happens or if there's comp changes that continue to happen, I guess that can of course stem it over time. But um, yeah. And there's definitely a few of those that happen out there as well. Yep. Yeah. So, so talk to us about like what it was like and what the process was once you made this mental decision. Okay, I think I want to leave. Oh, wait, like I have an employment contract and there's a whole bunch of rules. Yeah, so I read that. That was one of the first things I did was I went back and got that just to make sure I understood it, even though as the planning went on and as my research went on, I recognized that broker protocol and, and Merrill Lynch, of course, being a broker protocol firm, that superseded those those particular employee agreements and the covenants within. So I just I started doing all that that the various research. I, I you know I had a forty five minute commute back and forth from work, so I used that time wisely. Where I was listening to I think I mentioned Mindy Diamond's podcast earlier. Listen to that. I listened to yours. I read articles online endlessly not every single driving. week. <laughs> not while driving. Yeah, that would that would be the ultimate multitasker there. Podcast while you drive. Articles when you get home. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so I was doing. I was going through that process of just educating myself, learning as much as I possibly could, so that as I put that plan together and put all of the various pieces together, it I did so the right way. And 
And yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I'm happy to go into whichever, I guess, detail of the of that process. Yeah, I, I just, I'd, I'd love to hear just sort of the details of like, how does this, how does this play out? Like, what is it really like when you say and decide, like, I, I think I'm going to make a switch and I want to make sure this goes well and I don't want to get in trouble. I, like, I don't want to blow up my switch by <laughs> you getting, getting hit with temporary restraining orders and lawsuits. So like, what I mean, what did you do? How did this work for you? Yeah, so yeah, so compliance perspective, because obviously there's you have to custodian, which I'm sure we'll talk about. You have to line that up, your whole tech stack, you're investigating all these different different pieces. But from the compliance portion of it, I mentioned I, I think I talked to you like with the one article that you had written kind of detailed what it would look like to line up and make sure that when you chose to make that break and on the day you made the break, everything had to be in order, inclusive of the yep. firm being live with on the broker protocol list, you as an individual being, of, of course, U4 has having been submitted for that particular company with that company so that once you did leave and on the day that you break, you're able to immediately solicit your prior clientele and and taking those five pieces of information with you that that broker protocol permits. So, you know, th- those who who aren't familiar with with broker protocol, you just you have to familiarize yourself with it and some will work with a law firm um which which certainly I would recommend when for <laughs> I think for larger teams it's it's very feasible because you might have a little more resources, but I was slightly more bootstrapped even though I did have savings. And I got some some good free advice also from an attorney. His name's Dennis Consilla. He used to he's out in the Midwest, but he had given me some great free, you know, complimentary type advice at one point along the way. And just through through learning more and more, I I, I understood what I had to do. So I, I was in the dark piecing together the the pieces of information that I was was able to take with me. I was working with a compliance firm that 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 you know made sure that all of my documents were in alignment before they were being submitted to the state. And who who did you end up working with from the compliance end? Yeah, so it's it's Foresight now. I mean, it was NCS and then Foresight acquired okay. NCS. So then that's who I continue to work with to this day from that compliance standpoint. So so they were the ones who put together my agreements, really walked me through everything, and you know they knew broker protocol, but. I still had to do a lot of research on my own and make sure that I was comfortable with it. It's just, it's in my nature to know as much as I possibly can about every detail around it because this is my livelihood. I have a family to support. So I was going to ensure that I knew everything and that I didn't end up moving forward unless I knew it was done appropriately. So, so I had all my information and were there key milestones or things that you were really focused on? what you had to get through in the buildup to make a transition? Yeah, I mean, I wanted as much as possible. So, I mean, I knew the custodian relationship. I was working with Fidelity and I I opted for Fidelity early on. You know, I guess I'll talk about them a, a little bit and just the the process that I went through was was awesome. You know, I, I think I had listened to a Michael Henley podcast with you and then they they really chose Fidelity as their primary custodian. So, I had formed this relationship or started speaking with a gentleman by the name of Will Benenson at Fidelity who was has been phenomenal throughout this entire transition and process and loved the fact that they were private. They they assembled the transition for team for me even though 
I technically had lesser assets than they might have as a minimum. They saw the, the value, I think, in working with me, and they've just been rock stars. Every, everyone that I've worked with from that perspective has, has been great. And that partnership... Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of sidestepping to this custodian because I, it's, it is, it's so, it's so important with just and now with what's going on with with Schwab and TD Ameritrade, or Schwab Trade, I think if, as you've coined it, Michael. I, I just think it, I just think it works. Like, why would you not call it? <laughs> why would you not call it Schwab Trade? Like, it just, I love it. it. It rolls and it preserves Chuck's legacy. It's great. Yeah, that's right. So, so with Schwab Trade going on and. Uh, there's this Pershing there too, but there's there was kind of limited, and I don't view it as others might be more of a vendor where you can switch things up quickly, but that is not how I viewed it early on. And I, I felt the sense, or I got the sense that Fidelity viewed it that way too. It was purely a partnership and that they were in it to support me and have, have, have really continued to feel that way moving forward. And again, the, the, the fact that they were private, they weren't beholden to shareholders' quarterly reports, it was... Just, it just made sense to me, and and I valued that. So that was that was you know one of the biggest pieces outside of the compliance perspective. That was one of the big things was finding out which custodian I was going to work with, and then kind of parlaying from there with the tech stack and figuring out all the moving pieces that go into owning your own business. So, were you evaluating and getting into other RA custodians as well, and having conversations with all of them, or? Did you just talk to Phil early on? It's like, I like that you're privately held and I really like the the interaction I'm having with you and the way you're supporting it. It's like, this is going to work for me. I'm moving forward from here. Yeah. And at the, at the time when I started talking with them, I was also researching XYPN and I saw that there was the real relationship there with TD Ameritrade. And I, I knew a little bit about the minimums from doing some research, but I think I had to be live before, from what I had read, I think online, where I had to be live before I really started forming that relationship with them and getting things right. going. Versus, I was able to plan things out far in advance with Fidelity, and that just kind of solidified it for me even more. Even though I was leaning towards them from the onset, they have, they have a strong Northeast presence. There's obviously a lot of retirement plans are maintained through Fidelity in the, in, the, in the Northeast specifically. So there was just so many factors. The fact that they had higher cash sweep options was was big for me. And they're just doing, I felt like they were doing things the the right way. And that went back to me to being to being private. And this is, and it's not a not, I, the fact is I didn't talk intimately with any other custodian, so I can't speak to them. And maybe they would have been just as, as beneficial, but I, I just didn't experience that really as much. So I can only speak on behalf of, you know, kind of the relationships that I formed with Fidelity. Well, I mean, there are powerful points of just, you know, the, they were working with me, they were ready to work with me to have me go live the moment I do the transition break, because it's a big deal. You know, when, when you're, if you're starting, if you're launching your own from scratch, I mean, obviously you, you want to get going just because you want to get going, but you can do that pre-work on your own or on the side and just, you decide when you're pulling the switch to say, okay, I'm going to quit my own job or my old job or leave my old firm and and go and do this when you're in a breakaway process particularly in a large firm environment you know the the other people in your branch will be calling your clients next monday <laughs> to you know ask them to keep their business with the company so you know the the breaks when they come you tend to really have a pressure to say you got to do it fast cuz you want to be first call out to your clients 
Or even that Friday, not at, not not calling on Monday, even that Friday when I broke in the afternoon. It was uh, quick on the draw that time. So you, you resigned Friday afternoon and they were already redistributing your clients to other people to call while you're walking out the door. Yeah, and it was – I mean, it wasn't, I didn't resign late on Friday afternoon because I wasn't going to take the chance once I had gotten the go ahead and I knew my firm and, and I personally as an individual had gone live with the state with my firm and, and I was on broker protocol list and received that email. I wasn't going to wait. You know, I was at that point, I'm just, I'm paranoid the U4 is on and, and it could be found out. So I, once I, I received that noting that I was on the broker protocol list, I, I, I went in and tendered my resignation. It was it was more midday. It wasn't late afternoon. So there was a few hours where they were able to distribute accounts. And yeah, they, and they, they reached out to a few clients and, and a couple of them, as I was working my way down my list later on in the day, had been called first by them. So it was they did receive that initial shock to, to get the news from a different advisor. But it was <laughs> it was more of a joking matter at the time, honestly, because I think the ones who who were called before I reached out to them and relayed the message, I, I had a very very strong relationship with. So it was it was it was kind of funny at the time. Yeah, it's I mean, it just it's part of the very real world reality of of the sort of the sensitivity of the timing. Like, I need I need my U four to get filed so that I'm you know, properly registered with the new firm. So that I can then file the broker for the new firm and the broker protocol, so that I'm legitimately making a protocol to protocol switch. But if it takes too long, the firm may get notification that my U4 was filed, and then they're going to call my branch manager and have me terminated because I just registered with another firm. It is still the challenging reality. Like that, that day is still is still very messy. And and as we had with one guest who joined us in the past, like. He went in to resign Friday afternoon. His manager wasn't there. <laughs> they were they were out of the game. <laughs> I think that was Mike Henley. Yeah, I think that was Mike Henley from, yeah. from Merrill. Yeah, they were like, away. And so, oh. But as long as long as it's somebody, you know, eight, nine, ten, they have a supervisory license, you're able to to present it to them, the, the proper immediate effective immediately resignation and and with the as you know, the five pieces of information and an attached account number list that you provide to them. Of course you can't take account numbers. So I just I can't stress enough. You get name, <laughs> you get name, mailing address, phone number, email address, and titling. Titling. Of your yeah. That's right. Yeah, and then that, along with the count numbers, is what you present to the firm that you are leaving, along with a letter, preferably with your new company's letterhead, stating your effective immediately resignation, and just make it simple. So, and I just can't for anyone listening to this that is potentially considering it, make sure you follow all the steps that were just outlined. And while there were a number of other podcasts I listened to, I never, I still had to piece things together, I felt like, because I was largely on my own, even compliance firms. There's a lot of compliance firms who don't know every single detail when it comes to exactly what you need to do for broker protocol. So just ensure anyone listening to this, that they follow all those steps that you force submission, the firm goes live then submitting to broker protocol at, it's, I always mix it up. If it's capital forensics or forensic capital, I forget, but I think capital forensics where you submit your, your company for it to be added to the broker protocol list before resigning. So it's just, it's a very specific process and time frame that you have to follow. Yeah, and and to me, it's one of the reasons why I I I really am a a very big supporter of getting a compliance expert involved, of having a compliance firm, you know, supporting you and 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 in your corner on it. Just 
if you're really making that transition, their clients to move, you look, you can do it. Like the whole point of the protocol is you can do it and it is permissible and you, know, you, you don't get in trouble, but like it is a super specific process. And, you know, the firms don't like losing people and knowing that assets are going to follow them. It's like if you screw it up and give them an opportunity to come after you or try to put a restraining order on you or, or throw a legal challenge at you for violating your non-compete or your employment contract, like they will do it. They got lawyers whose sole job sitting around and <laughs> waiting to send some nasty grams to people. So, you know, if you if you keep your nose clean, you know, there is a process and it is there for a reason because all the firms figured out years ago that constantly suing each other was not really productive at the end of the day. But don't give them an excuse to come after you. Like that's yeah, do not give them an excuse. That is the most maybe they won't either way, even if you didn't execute it perfectly, but do not give them the ability to just don't leave that open. Make sure it's you're doing it all the way, not partial. So so you mentioned kind of the 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 overflow of decisions you were looking at you made fidelity is the decision for custodial platform. So what was the decision for the rest of the core technology stuff that you need to to run the firm? Yeah, so so demos, lots of demos, of course, and the different different types of technologies that are available to us and and what a world we do live in now with obviously technology in all industries, but from from the fintech's perspective, it's just it's it's incredible. And the, the reasonable pricing to of these various technologies. So I demoed a ton for financial planning, which it was probably the, the next most important piece from a tech stack perspective. E-money had been purchased by Fidelity, and there was obviously seamless integrations because of that. And I just felt the type of planning that I was doing, where it was a combination of goals-based and cash flow planning, depending upon the type of client I was working with, I just liked their their platform the best. I felt like the, the the prettiness from the client perspective when they log in and having it as a portal was was phenomenal and the ability to do interactive planning with clients is is really really amazing. And then from the usability side and, and the price it all it all made sense. So e-money for me was kind of a no-brainer. CRM, you know, client relationship management software was was probably a next one that was was important. And Wealthbox is what I ended up deciding on. I'm an Apple user and I like stuff that is well built. And yes, maybe it is kind of closed off from a functionality and custom, customization perspective, but it works and it works well. So as other Wealthbox users know, or those who might look to demo it at some point in the future, it had kind of this Facebook feel, but it was there wasn't too much there. I'd come from a world where I was using Salesforce and Yes, there's an incredible amount of functionality within Salesforce and customization that you can do. But for me, being an Apple user, it was too much. And that's, yeah. that's kind of the easiest way for me to describe it was that it was, was Android versus Apple. Yeah, I'd say like it's, a, it's just designed well and it works to do what you want it to do. And like, great, check that box, move on to my next decision. Yeah, let's apply the kiss. I try and apply the kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid as much as possible. When making any kind of, whether it's business decision or any decision in my life, just keep it simple. And so it felt like it, it did what it needed to do. They also, of course, now have the email feature within, within Wealthbox, which was a nice added feature. And, and the price is incredibly reasonable. So a CRM. And now I'm at the point where all the other technologies, I've started using Quanti. 
it was obviously advice pay through through the XYPN network and kudos to you. I got to give a shout out to you and Alan Moore through through XYPN and the flat fee offering that you guys have there and the resources that are that are available within are awesome. And I think even more important, the community within is 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 is, is phenomenal and is is kind of priceless. But on top of that, all the technologies and the resources. Have been great. So I've been able to now kind of nitpick and finalize some of the other pieces of technology that I needed to to bring on to to have the kind of service model that I wanted for my clients. So, so in terms of the tech, obviously, advice pay for you know doing and collecting financial planning fees and and getting paid when you're not on an AUM model. You know, Quanti is more of an investment like research platform, doing some of your analysis and 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 proposals. So what are you using for like performance reporting and, and such? Yeah. So this will be similar to the Michael Henley podcast, I, I guess as well, where I'm really using e-money and the custodians themselves, whether they be within fidelity or if clients have external assets, because I am passive I believe markets are incredibly efficient, um, especially now with with data being available the way it is and at the rapid pace that it's available. So I'm not trying to to beat anything out. So there is, you know, performance flow through within eMoney, especially for the Fidelity accounts, not yet for external accounts, unless you're using a portfolio aggregation and type of software where it's giving performance reporting. So, but Honestly, that's the most costly. So, and I, I don't know yet. Maybe I'll end up shifting on this, but the type of clientele that I work with, it just isn't necessary because we're not performance driven. So, in essence, like eMoney Portal has its fidelity integration. So, it'll show you account balances. It gives you at least some basic performance indication of, of you just literally like how your money is doing. And, you know, the rest of what we tend to do in performance reporting, which is a lot of like, performance relative to benchmark and performance breakdowns and attribution analyses and such just you've got a more passive investment approach it's not part of the conversations with clients anyways so just not paying for that software let let clients see it through money and whatever they get on the fidelity website that's right because it is costly and the you know whether it's orion black diamond some of these different providers that's one of the more costly things that you'd end up having to to shell out some some money for but but i I've, I've been using now and this is still early right this is I, I, my firm went live on december 13th so i'm very much in an infancy stage right. even though the transition has gone very well I'm now starting to to use Quanti, believe it or not, where you can pull in outside through through some of their integrations. And I'm using certain types of model portfolios that are built out with usage of Vanguard funds, some Fidelity funds. I'm in the process of working with with DFA, I'm sure you're familiar, you have to to kind of get approved. So and, and building out those those portfolios and then just tracking it against a benchmark or an index. And we're not trying to beat the world, the value that my feeling is and what I'm providing to my clients is on the planning side. It is on the tax efficiencies. It's on estate planning. It's all these, it's on just the emotional behavioral types of things that, that an advisor working as a counselor for their clients is, is going to have an effect on. So how did this go from the, the client transition end? Like at the end of the day, did, uh, did a reasonable number of them come along? Did all of them come along? How, how hard was it to get them to come along or not? How did that go now that you're uh, a few months into this transition? 
Yeah, so it's going to be close to that 80% mark of the clients that I wanted to bring with me. I'd say it's the actual clients who have come over thus far are getting close to 60%, but there's the other 20% of the clients are still in this transition phase where just schedules, start of the new year. Obviously, I, I broke it when we were coming into the holiday time frame. So there, there are those who have had some difficulty finding the time, but have still said, yes, it's just making sure we get everything signed up and moved. So close to 80% from, from that standpoint have, are going to end up coming over of the clients that I wish to bring with me. Yeah. Okay. So recognize like the, the total that may come may, be, may end up being a little bit lower than 80%, but we don't always want to bring anyone, everyone. Like sometimes they're not a great fit. Sometimes they may not fit the future model of what we're doing. You know, we, we, most of us have that subset of clients of like, yeah, if I changed firms and they didn't come, that would be a real shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and some of them were hand-me-down clients too, right? The, the bulk of my clients within Merrill were, were ones that I brought in on my own, but I had a, a number of a few inherited clients where I didn't have a great relationship from from the get-go because I didn't bring them in, and I still served them well. And I and I if I really wanted to, but the relationship just wasn't wasn't right you know phenomenal from from the get-go so the, those types of clients as well interesting and so is that in line with what you were hoping for or expecting it was yeah and that's not to say i knew there would be some surprises there's just that's just how life works like it's not it's yep. rose-colored glasses are not always going to be rose-colored so i knew there was going to be some hiccups and and there was and when it happens you face that rejection the similar types of rejection that you have when somebody doesn't want to move forward with you as, as a client or whatever it is it's the same type of rejection and that feeling that you get but if if you had planned appropriately and had been thoughtful around what was going to happen, you would have been expecting it. And then you're able to move forward very quickly and just move on to the next one, basically, and and still be cordial. And, and maybe they'll they'll change their tune in the future if the relationship they end up building in that same firm is, is not up to par or how it was prior. And so that's part of why even, even saying, okay, I know I'm not going to take all my clients because there's some I just don't really want. I'm, I'm fine to leave behind. Even of the ones that you wanted to bring over and knew you were going to make a, an outreach to and ask them to come with you, like you, you were assuming you were only going to get 80% of them because you were just assuming some of like, some of these are going to be surprises. I don't know which ones, but I'm, I'm, I'm budgeting for the surprise. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of them was a bigger surprise and a slightly larger client, but under my under my new fee structure, it's not as as critical because you know for for wealth management clients, my fee is really tiered from five thousand to ten thousand. At the I've kind of capped it at ten thousand, so it didn't hurt me as much from a revenue standpoint. But that was one that was a bigger bigger surprise. I just thought the relationship was was better, and that's that's the reality of this. It's not. I think others might want to paint it where it's this perfect picture, and, and no, I'm 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 bulletproof, and everybody loves me, and there's no way they're not going to come with me. It's just not the reality. So when you have that bigger shock, but luckily it didn't it didn't hurt too much from that revenue standpoint. Well, and and there's a piece I think to it as well that when you build particularly in a, in, a, in a large national firm environment, right? A, a company like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, you know, a, a piece of, I mean, a piece of why a lot of advisors go to companies like that to build their career is 
you get this this implicit trust imbued on you from having a large national brand and a company name that every prospect and client knows and is familiar with. And, and it, it gives them a certain level of comfort and confidence that like their money's not just going to vanish one night because uh, heck, even if it doesn't work out with you, there's like a bajillion other people at your firm. And you know, the, the good news of having that brand on your business card is it can help bring in business and get going. I think particularly for some advisors when they're very new and haven't established their own credibility and relationship yet, but the bad news is then when you when you go out and, and you go independent, A, some people will decide at the end of the day they're they're actually were more loyal to the brand than you, which which may or may not hurt. And and for some, like there's a reason they picked that firm. Like they like giant national brands. And no matter how good you are individually, they just don't have the same confidence in your your hanging your own shingle. Like <laughs> Going from that giant national firm to hang your own shingle, like I, I just don't know if I'm comfortable in in startup realm, and not entirely a fair characterization since obviously the assets are custodied with fidelity along with a few trillion others. But but there is a perception difference for some clients that where big national companies, national brands matter. And then there is the flip side too, and I think you know, yes, that has primarily been the case for for the test of time. But now, more so on the other side, there are those who who love the fact that you're going out on your own and that you are creating something separated from the big bank and from the wirehouse firm. So yeah, I think more so to your point, the the convenience of having the banking consolidated under one umbrella and receiving some rewards, that was more so what it was. It wasn't necessarily the fact that it was just strictly the brand because brand reputation has been been hurt, especially I think for those who have yep. um, who have have been purchased by banks. But I think even more so is just the fact that having banking and rewards programs under that same umbrella was was a piece of it for 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 the, especially for the clients that didn't come with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, fair. Like that's you know that they call them rewards loyalty programs for a reason. Like. They help promote loyalty. <laughs> like they, it, it works. It it makes people want to stick around sometime to feel like they're getting re- rewards for being a, a loyal, continuing customer at some of those companies. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of my selling points while I was there. Yeah, was the fact that you could do that, and there was different types of rewards. I'd come from the banking center, so I knew those programs very well from the banking perspective. So that was a big part of my pitch. So. And no surprise that 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 was one of the reasons for you know a few of my clients that wanted to to remain, and we'll see you know we'll see where that goes. So so talk to us about the the business as it exists today. Like what did what did you go stand up and create when you decided to go on your own? Because you've, you've mentioned a few times that you know being inspired by James Osborne, who who runs a, a flat fee model, not an AUM model, and that and that you were looking at some non-AUM options. So like, how does the, what is the business today and how does it actually work? Yeah. So it was an amalgamation of all these different ideas and, and structures that I had seen elsewhere. And from a pricing or fee structure standpoint, I did want to be able to service a wide range of clients. And I felt that by using strictly a comprehensive wealth management, singular flat fee, similar to that of James Osborne's structure, 
I felt like that was going to to limit who I could assist. So what I've done is I do have standalone financial planning where I can do financial plan construction for individuals that's the pricing is between a thousand and fifteen hundred, depending upon whether or not they become a retainer client. If, if they choose to become a retainer client, that's $130 a month for strictly financial planning guidance. Similar to that of like a financial fitness membership is how it's labeled with on my company website. And I think people are in, in dire need of that now with just the amount of excessive debt that's out there and, and that knowing where to put your money, how to pay down things, asset location, all these these financial planning pieces that people really need that assistance. So I wanted to be able to do that, not strictly for those who had amassed a certain amount of assets, but for those who just needed to have strictly financial planning help. So that's one piece. And then the other, which which is the bulk of my clients now, because that's how I serve clients under Merrill Lynch, and that's who transitioned over, is the comprehensive wealth management client where I'm doing both portfolio management and financial planning guidance for. And those fees will range from really 5000 to 10000 but there are some some that are a little bit less than that from clients that I had brought over from Merrill, and that's an annual fee that is paid on a quarterly basis. It's essentially that kind of flat fee retainer. So that is what things look like now, and, and echoing you know, some of the ideology that James had discussed on that prior podcast is I had grown uncomfortable too with a number of my clients that maybe were in the two to $5 million range. And I was doing the same, <laughs> you know, I hate to, 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 to almost sound like a, a robot or a repeater, but I was doing approximately the same level of work, maybe a slight amount more for those clients versus somebody who had closer to a half a million dollars. So that, that felt the same way. So while I still used tiers, and I guess I can discuss that as I made these tiers where between half a million and one million, it's a $5,000 annual fee, one million to two million, it's $7,500. And then two million up, it is capped at $10,000. So basically at the highest end, yes, you are at 1%. And that is where it's, it's capped to say if you had exactly a half a million dollars. But then from that point on, you are getting relief. And especially as you get into the the higher net worths, you're getting a more tremendous amount of relief because, again, my feeling was that the amount of work was incrementally higher, given why I still have slightly higher fees at that higher level, but not to two, three, four, five x right. what it was. So, so basically, up, up to a million is five thousand. One million to two million is seventy five hundred. Two million plus is ten thousand, and just they're flat tiers. Yeah, exactly. And there's still obviously there's there's language within ADV and for pricing where there's negotiation that can happen if if a client who came along who was ultra high net worth or had estate planning issues that were very intensely complicated, then it could look different. Right. But you know that's yeah. So that's how I formulated it. So in practice, as you took that back to clients, was that a fee increase? For them, a fee decrease for them? Was there some of each where some ended up being a little higher and some ended up being a little lower? It was the same or less for everybody because I was charging 1% or even slightly higher than that because at one point earlier in my time at Merrill, kind of the base percentage that you could charge without getting a haircut essentially was was a little over 1%. But, but now, since my fee is really at the highest level, 1%, 
you know, it's, it was the same or less for everybody. And it was, it was easy for me to explain. I think advisors get caught up on this notion that percentage is so much easier and it's so much more uh, kind of clandestine the way we explain it, where it's not, it's not right in your face, but I never, I, I haven't had a problem because it's just very quick. Like give, give our clients credit and saying, Hey, no, at 1%, you were getting charged. So-and-so I am now going to charge you this flat fee. It is less than what you would have been charged under that percentage of assets under management model. And just get over the fear of that lump in your throat of saying the hard dollar figure. Like it's uh, so I, I haven't had an issue with it. And my clients, the clients that I brought with me, there was no, it, it made sense to them very, very quickly. And I think as consumers become more knowledgeable and there's advocates for them and with technology and automation, making administrative back office work far easier for individuals like myself and my types of practice, you're going to see that type of, of structure more and more. Hence, I'm sure as why you <laughs> XYPN and are a fan of the fee-for-service model. Yep. Yeah, well, and and you know, to me, it's sort of it's it's interesting and twofold in that it's not just about sort of redistributing or or remanaging clients who were on AUM and can afford AUM. We're just going to say, well, we're we're just going to do this flat fee arrangement because it's different in pricing on that end. But as you've noted here, like the other clients that you can start working with when you say, or we've also got this ongoing monthly fee option, and like. I don't care what your assets are. I don't care if you have assets. Like this is just a financial planning relationship and I will charge you for the financial planning advice and we can work on that basis. And it doesn't matter if you're bringing assets to the table or what they are. Yeah, and the benefit, the additional benefit because of that is that it, it functions as a feeder, right? You have those who are probably closer to age, me, but have a higher income, but haven't amassed a great deal of assets yet. And it functions as a perfect feeder type of relationship to become your comprehensive wealth management clients eventually. So, you know, I I just wanted to make sure that depending upon the trajectory of my firm in the future and some of the vision that I have for it, I wanted to be able to service as many clients as possible and potentially allow maybe bolt-on advisors or others who who could plug in at some point to do it that same way and have that type of feeder system to, to bring about the the larger paying, you know, comprehensive wealth management clients at that level. So what surprised you the most about making this transition to independence out of the big firm into your own firm? Hmm. <laughs> it's tough. I don't know. I, I haven't had a great deal of, of giant surprise. You know, I mentioned the couple of clients that for me were a big surprise that chose not to come with Again, it's only been about a month and a half, so I'm sure I'm going to have some additional surprises along the way. Nothing has 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 reared an ugly head that's that's been a shocker for me. I think, you know, early on and, and during the process of opening things up, you you think everyone's going to have this this great deal of su- support behind you, but there is, you know, as, as you talk about with that that success and that mountain of success and everything that is below, there is, there's a lot of skepticism too. So I think at times when anybody as an, as an entrepreneur would know, you might be surprised by people might not be willing to throw the complete support behind you. Um, but you, that's just, that's not just this industry. That is just being an entrepreneur at all because people tend to go towards the more comfortable route. But I guess it is still somewhat of a surprise when you might think some would be, you're really behind you. 
that's in terms of just like friends and family dynamics of of people are like dude steve you're at this big national firm that we all know like why are you going out and hanging your own shingle you're crazy like stay at your big firm yeah, and I think ultimately that is because they're they're concerned for you and they want to make sure that you're okay. But when you've done the amount of research that I did, when you've put the amount of time and thought into it that I did, I, I felt confident. But they didn't, and you can't expect somebody else to to think along those lines because they weren't in your shoes. And right. so it's it's so I say it's a surprise, but I mean, it, in actuality, maybe it wasn't a com- complete surprise. So, so. What's been the low point for you in building the business over the past five years? Over the past five years, I think I haven't had a I haven't had that low point yet. I'm you know because again we've when markets have been calm, I have a feeling that at some point you know of markets that, that creates work is a lot harder when there's turbulent markets when that time inevitably comes. So it, 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 there hasn't been a great deal of low points. I think, you know, I've been able to manage and balance my time relatively well, especially because I had, you know, I have two daughters now and I've experienced the birth of my two children over the past three years. And that was incredible. And, 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 you know, being and doing what we do, you do have the ability to have afforded a little bit extra time and some flexibility with how you manage it. So, I guess because I have had to commit a large amount of time now to doing what I'm doing and opening my business, I haven't felt it a great, but, but that is a low point where I haven't been able to spend probably quite as much time with my daughters at their younger ages, but, but I still have a decent amount. So, and, and, and what I would think would be pretty fortunate compared to maybe others who are in the military or something else. So, but, but that's one aspect because you do have to dedicate a lot of time when you're getting something like this off the ground. So after five plus years of building in the business, anything you wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago based on what, what you've now learned having done this for a while? Just keep – have confidence in yourself. Just continue to have that confidence where if you have an idea that you are passionate about and you think something should be done in a certain way, then move forward with it. Don't obviously do your planning and – have a certain vision for it and and put everything in motion the, the right way, but don't be afraid to to push forward and do those things that you want to do because ultimately purpose is what what drives our lives right and if if you find you know my slo- the slogan of my firm is is wealth is freedom found it's something i you know I wanted to bring up because that's it's something I think about all the time i It hit me to the core when I thought about what what wealth truly is and not just wealth in the financial sense but his name I think it's Zaid Dahaji. I had read something at one point where he talks about these different types of of wealth financial wealth social wealth time wealth and physical wealth and one of the early blog posts i I wrote discussed that and how he states be careful of those things that rob you of your time and physical wealth to provide you with financial and social wealth and and social wealth is really status so that was that was critical to me and just building something that that allowed you to focus on those things was was awesome yeah so what advice would you give to newer advisors that are are coming into the industry today and want to be a financial advisor focus on doing the right thing for the for the client first and foremost regardless of whatever else you hear out there 
obviously obtaining your CFP, I think, is is kind of just a baseline for obtaining knowledge and making sure that you are going to be able to serve clients in the right manner. So doing that and then finding a mentor, find somebody who has been through it, who's 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 traveled down that road and who has strong character and and has the the right level of integrity so that you can attempt to kind of model what you're doing after them to an extent while still of course implementing your own way of thinking around those things. I like that. I like that. So uh where have you found your mentors? <laughs> I had a, a couple within within Merrill where whether they were just incredibly helpful from learning the red tape when you first get in and also the more the f- philosophical approach, but it's, kind of, you know, I'm thinking right now when I think about it, right. There's like Will Hunting in, in the Good Will Hunting movie. He talks about these individuals that he never knew. Right. But for me, I mean, I'm talking right. to one of them who I would consider, consider you because I spent all this time, right. Where individuals like yourself, Steve Lockshin, I mentioned before, James Osborne, I think just by listening to them. And even though I haven't had in-depth conversations with them, I've learned so much because your immediate circle when you're an advisor, right. and especially when you're wanting to to have a structure the way I've structured my business, you might not have a lot of people who are on the yeah. same wavelength as you. So it's, it's, it's incredible now speaking with you, someone who's in that same space, whereas when you're attempting to explain it to your buddy that you grew up with at your hometown and you go out to the, yeah. the bar and have a drink with or something, they're just, it's, you're not going to be able to to have the same kind of conversation. So I think some of those individuals I mentioned and listening to them and reading things is what I would consider mentors as well. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. So you're, you're off on this success journey, you had the successful transition out of the big firm to make the thing that you want to make in the future for, for the advisory business. But I'm just wondering how how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, it's I think first and foremost it is pushing pushing yourself to for change because not always becoming comfortable if you're not adapting and you're not trying to find yourself on the forefront of the curve you you're going to to just get gobbled up through inertia and to really experience what I would consider happiness and, and contentment, you have to have this additional drive that only comes from purpose in doing the things that you're most passionate about. I think that's that's what's coming to mind right now. <laughs> but thinking back to a prior podcast, and I, I forget who this was, I think it might have been Mike Kenley again. He it was incredibly simple simplistic the way he described it. It is doing the things that you love in the places you love with the people you love. That was it was it was kind of the easiest way to describe what success truly is, because if you're doing that, you're going to be content. And to me, contentment is happiness. So I love it. I love it. Well, I'm excited you got to make the transition to, as you said, you know, to get to do the thing you love in the place you love with the, the people you love and building the business. So I'm I'm excited to see where it goes for you here as you as you build on the next stage and Hopefully, we want to come back and join us in a few years and, and maybe give us an update on how the journey is going. Yeah, I'd look forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. 
Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.